dated September 24, 2013. A news van pulls up outside Pentridge Prison in Coburg, a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. The logo splashed in bold red letters across the side is that of 60 Minutes, the Australian version of the popular US TV news show. Tara Brown, one of the main correspondents, climbs out, along with her camera crew, and stares up at the imposing walls that loom over them. Opened in 1851, Pentridge Prison closed its gates for the last time on May 1st, 1997. During its 148 years, it was home to the country's most notorious criminals, one of whom she's brought with her today. A 58-year-old man eases himself out of the passenger seat and onto the road. It's obvious from the way he moves that he's ill. He moves like a man 20 years his senior, walking gingerly towards the gate. Mark Brandon Reed, known to many as Chopper, was one of Pentridge's most famous guests, spending decades behind these walls. His nickname originally was a reference to a character in an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Innocent enough as a child, but it took on a more sinister meaning in adulthood. Reed was once one of the most feared men in Australian organized crime. Accused of everything from petty theft to multiple homicides, his reputation for being fearless and ruthless carved out a niche for a young Reed in a world where only the toughest of men can thrive. The older version of him who stands here today has capitalized on that reputation for decades, becoming something of a modern-day anti-hero, branching out into books, music, and even stand-up comedy. Today, though, it's not just about revisiting the place he spent almost a third of his adult life trapped in, or the crimes that put him here. Mark Reed has stood trial for one murder and been suspected of as many as 19, but he has never been convicted of any of them. Today, he has promised to do more than just talk about those allegations. Reed has promised Tara Brown and the 60 Minutes team an exclusive. He is dying from liver cancer and knows he doesn't have long left. Before he is too ill to speak, he has promised he will not only confess to murder, but that he will share intimate details of who he killed, as well as why and how he killed them. The crew go in ahead to set up, leaving Reed and Brown to follow at a pace that's more comfortable for the ailing man. Inside, the place is deserted, and their footsteps echo off the thick concrete walls. In its heyday, it held as many as 650 prisoners. But today, Reed and the news team are its only occupants. Reed and Brown stroll down the open-plan central corridor, gazing up at the three floors of tightly packed cell blocks that rise above them. Bright yellow lines still slice the floor in half, once a means to direct the flow of prisoners. The cameraman has set up a pair of chairs in a crossroads where two corridors meet. And the interview begins. What Reed will go on to reveal contradicts every protestation of innocence he has spat at his accusers all these years. And it's not just one murder he shares with her, but four, spread across as many decades. His list includes one that he was even acquitted of in court. And if his confessions are true, 
it means that Mark Reed has literally gotten away with murder for 41 years. But what makes someone take the life of another? Is it nature or nurture? For the answers to that, we need to travel back to Reed's childhood and chart his progress from young boy to one of the most feared men in the country. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Mark Reed, of the words he spoke as he knew he was dying. A career criminal, quick to anger, with a reputation for brutality. Someone so feared in his prime that even other criminals paid him protection money. The life of violence that didn't stop when he was put behind bars. And the startling claims he made just 16 days before his death that, if true, means he has lied his way out of one murder and covered up another three. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Mark Reed is born on November 17, 1954, in the blue-collar Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. His mother is a devout Seventh-day Adventist, and his father is a retired soldier, a veteran of the Second World War. It's not a happy household, and a young Reed spends chunks of his childhood between foster care and a children's home. He will later share that he was sexually abused as a child around the age of five or six, but is sparse on the details. In school, Reed is bullied, later claiming that he had been on the losing end of several hundred fights. School isn't the only place he's abused, though. His father, usually encouraged by his mother, beats him regularly for even minor transgressions. 
His mother believes he is both autistic and dyslexic, and aged 14, he is made a ward of the state. As a result, he spends much of the next few years in a series of mental institutions, where he is subjected, amongst other things, to repeated electroshock treatment. When asked about his relationship with his mother in later life, he says, When I was born, my mother said I was not a gift from God. Things went downhill from there. He describes his father as a good man, but one who was traumatized by what he had seen during the war, so much so that he slept with a loaded rifle by his bed every night. He passes his obsession with weapons on to Reed. Is it any wonder then, out of this troubled childhood, that Reed seeks solace in the acceptance of a gang culture? Somewhere to belong, with people who will have his back? Once he sets foot in that world though, it's a slippery slope that only runs one way. His first taste of life behind bars comes when he is just 17. In 1971, he is sentenced to one month for two assault charges. It's a swift progression from here, though, to something far more violent. When Reed is released from prison, he immediately turns back to a life of crime. He starts off small, building a name for himself within the crew he and his friends established, known as the Surrey Road Gang. Reed lives by a moral code of sorts, one that he credits his father with instilling in him. When he told his son, remember, just because you're going to kill a man is no reason for discourtesy. During these early years, Reed's victims are all criminals. As he sees it, drug dealers and pimps prey on those weaker than them. So why shouldn't they be fair game too? In his late teens, he becomes what is known as a standover man, or someone who imposes their will by intimidation. For Reed, this means robbing local dealers, as well as kidnapping and torturing those who won't give him what he wants. His methods are brutal, but effective. Among the most feared is his tendency to cut off people's toes with bolt cutters if they don't pay up. He also frequently uses a blowtorch on the soles of the victim's feet. Reed has a dark sense of humor and toys with some of the victims like a cat with a mouse. One such game he plays is to tell his victims he is going to sell them their own leg before pulling out a meat cleaver and chopping the blade around an inch into the side of their knee. He proceeds to tell them to pay up or he'll take their leg with him when he leaves. Not much of a choice and frighteningly effective. He receives several charges during this period, ranging from one month's imprisonment for being armed with an offensive weapon in 1974 to a longer two-year sentence the following year for a burglary, assault, and impersonating a police officer. Incredibly, his antics begin to gather him a fan base of sorts. People who see him as a vigilante who is simply handing out rough justice to folks who have made their choice to be on the wrong side of the law. When asked about his career choice to target criminals, Reed is quite open and honest about his motivations. I could steal your 20 bucks and you'd go to the cops, he would say. Or I can torture a drug dealer and he'll hand over six grand and never say a word. You do the math. Reed is unapologetic and more than happy to brag about his crimes to anyone who will listen, meaning that he's often caught and hauled into court for them. 
He's an imposing figure in a courtroom, a brute of a man, six foot two, 250 pounds. Reed also knows how to put on a show, gleefully pleading guilty to most of his charges. The media take great interest in these spectacles, with Reed known for trying to inject humor into proceedings. In one case, he is charged with shooting another man in the leg with a shotgun. When he is found guilty, the judge sentences him to two and a half years. Reed's response is to berate the judge for his leniency, asking how he'd be able to hold his head up in prison with such a short sentence for such a violent crime. He jokes that he won't leave the courtroom until he's sentenced to at least three years, which gets its fair share of chuckles from the press. His revolving door-style relationship with prison serves only to enhance his reputation. Out of these repeat visits, a new prison gang arises, with Reed at the head. The Overcoat Gang, as they are known, wear long coats to hide their weapons and are responsible for hundreds of incidents inside the Pentridge prison in the 70s. Violence is a two-way street, though, and Reed's enemies come close on a number of occasions to finishing him off. In 1977, during one of his brief stints outside of prison, he's held at gunpoint by a member of the Melbourne criminal underworld and forced into the trunk of a car. He has no idea where he is being taken or what fate awaits him. All he can do is lie in the cramped trunk space and bide his time as his captor drives for what seems like an eternity. When they eventually stop, it's outside the city somewhere and a handcuffed Reed is badly beaten. It's the only time in his life Reed will ever admit to feeling fear. Once the beating is over, he is marched 30 feet away from the car, handed a spade, and told to dig. Sensing he might not get a better chance, Reed complains he can't dig properly wearing the handcuffs. His captor reluctantly removes them, and he continues for a while longer. When he's hip deep in what would be his own grave, he pretends to hit a hard spot of the ground. Using it as an excuse to heft the spade up higher, he swings it at the man's knee with everything he's got. It connects like a blade, almost severing the man's leg, sending him crashing to the floor. Reed is up and out of the half-dug grave, and his next blow aims for the head, killing his abductor instantly. He admits to this murder openly in his 1991 memoir, Chopper, but isn't brought to trial for it. Reed never names his attacker, and there is no evidence that the event ever took place. Police simply chalk it up to another one of Reed's embellishments. However, as we will see in next week's episode, when it comes to his deathbed confession, he has no issues naming names, and his final words will be broadcast to thousands. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. 
Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Mere brushes with death aside, Reed feels unstoppable. His fearlessness, however, will soon be his downfall. In 1978, he plans his most audacious act yet, one that will see him locked up for the longest single sentence of his prison career. It's January 26, 1978, Australia Day, the national holiday that marks the first landing of European settlers to Australia. Judge Bill Martin arrives at the courthouse on the corner of Lunsdale and William, just as he has done hundreds of times before. Today, though, will be far from an ordinary day in court. It starts just like any other. Australia Day has yet to become a public holiday, so the court is open for business, albeit quieter than usual. He changes into his plain black robes in his chambers and heads out to hear the first case on his docket. He's an experienced judge and has seen it all before, or so he thinks. Outside the court, a 24-year-old Mark Reed has been patiently waiting, watching for the first judge to arrive. Anyone will do. This isn't personal to the judge, accused, or defendants. It is personal to Reed, though. When he was released from his most recent stay in prison the year before, he made a promise to a friend still inside. Reed left prison, telling his friend Jimmy Lunan, with six years of his own still to serve, that he would find a way to get him out early. Lunan shattered both of his ankles in an escape attempt and had broken down in front of Reed, saying he would likely stay behind bars until the day he dies. That's what has brought Reed here today. And that's why he has turned up with a shotgun hidden in the leg of his pants. His plan is simple. Take a judge hostage and trade his life for Lunan's freedom. Reed has one last scan around the lobby and heads into Judge Martin's court. He strides up to the man, grinning menacingly as he pulls the gun out. Moving quickly, he jumps up onto the raised bench at which Judge Martin is sitting and points both barrels at him. The court erupts into frightened cries. There are no policemen or guards in the room and most onlookers are frozen in place. But a clerk, by the name of Ernie Trotter, decides to take matters into his own hands. Judge Martin reaches out, pushing the barrel aside as Trotter, a former soldier, launches himself at Reed. The two men wrestle for control of the weapon, while Judge Martin rises from his chair, about to head for the safety of his chambers. As the two men continue to struggle, Judge Martin has a change of heart, turns back to face them, and plants a kick squarely between his attacker's legs before disappearing into his chambers. Trotter seizes his chance to grab the weapon and overpower Reed, pinning him and the gun to the floor. Moments later, six armed policemen, alerted by another member of staff, rush in and take over, leading Reed out in cuffs. Trotter will go on to be awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal for his actions. Reed, on the other hand, will receive his longest sentence yet. 14 years to be served in his now familiar stomping ground of Pentridge Prison. 
For many, prison is an intimidating experience, one to be avoided. Reed, however, seems to embrace it and the opportunity to grow the Overcoat Gang. Indeed, it's inside the walls of Pentridge that Reed, with his love of violence and seemingly endless tolerance for pain, will not only survive, but thrive. Walking back into Pentridge is like slipping on a comfortable old pair of sneakers for Reed. His reputation precedes him, and there are still many familiar faces in what is almost his home away from home. Pentridge is split into a number of divisions, ones that house everyone from young offenders, those awaiting trial, all the way through to high-risk, maximum security prisoners. It's into this last category that Reed falls, and he's sent straight to the notorious H Division. One of his most notable moments, an act that will literally scar him for life, happens within the first few months of his sentence. Reed decides that he wants out of maximum security and hatches a plan that would make most cringe at the very thought of it. One of the guards tells him he will rot in the H Division until his release. Reed sees this as a challenge and enlists the help of fellow inmate Kevin Taylor. That very same day, Taylor, as instructed by Reed, wraps toilet paper around a razor blade for a better grip and proceeds to cut off both of Reed's ears. Even for a man who embraces pain the way he does, Reed admits it hurts more than he expected, but stays stoically in place, arms folded across his chest as Taylor finishes the job. His brutal and bizarre choice works. Reed is transferred to the medical wing, for a time at least, before returning to H Division. This act cements his position as a man willing to cross any line to get what he wants. He returns to his position as head of the Overcoat Gang, alongside his old pal, Jimmy Lunin. Their friendship is a complicated one. In December 1978, the pair somehow escape from H Division, making it as far as the roof before being recaptured. They fight shoulder to shoulder in a war against a rival gang, a conflict that pushes their bond to the limits and beyond. Lunin worries that Reed is going too far with plans to attack every other inmate in H Division outside the Overcoat Gang. Lunin tries to talk him out of it, but when diplomacy fails, decides to take matters into his own hands. In August 1979, Lunin sees an opportunity and takes it, stabbing Reed in the chest. Some blame the tension within the gang. Others claim Lunin is looking to cash in on a contract on Reed's head, put out by the Painters and Dockers Union. Regardless of why it happened, the attempt on Reed's life is unsuccessful although he does lose several feet of intestine as a result. True to form, Reed is unfazed by the attack and uses it to increase his clout within Pentridge. The very next day after being stitched up, he is found doing press-ups in his cell, stitches split, blood dripping onto the concrete. This unparalleled capacity to both deliver and absorb pain is enough to prevent most from trying to finish what Lunin started. Incredibly for one with such a reputation, Reed does not pursue the feud, although he will later say in an interview that looking back, he should have broken Lunin's neck for his treachery. As for Lunin, his prediction that he would die inside Pentridge proves true. 
He dies in a fire in K Division in 1987, which he and other inmates start. 1987 also sees the early release of Reed, who, far from being rehabilitated, can't wait to unleash his particular brand of violence upon the Melbourne underworld. Melbourne has changed in the past nine years since Reed's been in prison. The criminal underworld is often in a state of flux, and while some of the key players have changed, Reed's way of working has not. Plenty of men have made a dishonest living while Reed has been locked up, and he intends to exploit them all. He bases himself out of the island of Tasmania, 240 miles south of Melbourne, and from here, launches a series of missions to threaten and extort his fellow criminals. He focuses mainly on drug dealers, gamblers, and corrupt nightclub owners. One trick he uses with frightening efficiency is to walk into a club carrying a stick of gelignite, a type of explosive, and threatening to light it unless he's paid off. The criminal ruling class of Melbourne doesn't take this lying down. Contracts are taken out on Reed, offering up to $50,000 to whoever kills him. Several try, but all fail. Reed continues undeterred as if making up for lost time. Drug dealer Nick Apostolidis is next in his sights. However, unlike most of Reed's victims, Apostolidis does not bend to his extortion attempts and refuses to pay up, a decision he'll come to regret. In April 1987, Reed retaliates by shooting a friend of Apostolidis in the stomach. He then goes after the man himself, shooting up Apostolidis' mother's house before setting fire to it. Miraculously, Nobody inside is injured. These actions will come back to haunt him, but incredibly, they are not the worst crime Reed commits that year. Reed, now 33, has stood trial for many forms of violence, but one he's yet to be taken to court for is murder. That's about to change. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. In June, just two months after the Apostolidis incident, Reed visits Bojangles, a popular nightclub in the town of St. Kilda, by the south coast. He gets into an argument with a local criminal, Siam Ozerkam, a.k.a. Sammy the Turk, that ends with Sammy lying dead from a gunshot wound in the car park. Reed walks away, leaving Sammy's body on the ground, and even tells police he pulled the trigger, but they didn't believe him. Not at first, anyway. Reed is known for telling tall tales. Eventually, though, he gets picked up for Sammy's murder, 
in large part due to how many people he brags about it to. A few months later, Reed is charged and put on trial for the killing. He swears in court that it was self-defense, a him-or-me situation, that pulling the trigger was his only choice. The story he tells the jury goes something like this. On June 11, 1987, Mark Reed met with police officers at the Faulkner Club Hotel in South Yarra, Melbourne. Reed had amassed an unmanageable amount of enemies and decided to play both sides of the fence for a change. He offered information on a number of crimes to the robbery squad in exchange for police protection and any information they had about possible assassination plots against him. Detective Rod Porter told Reed that the police had received word of yet another price on his head and advised him to lie low in Tasmania until things cool off. Reed was almost amused by the news, as if it was all one big joke. It won't be going anywhere, he told Detective Porter. Didn't want to miss all the fun. Instead, Reed leaned forward, telling Detective Porter if he was to continue gathering information, he'd need to protect himself. Detective Porter told him he wasn't about to start arming vigilantes, but Reed cut in. It's not a gun he wanted. It's a bulletproof vest. Porter relaxed a little. That he could do. Hours later, they reconvened in a park near St. Kilda Road Police Station and fitted Reed with the vest he requested. Reed promised to be in touch when he had more to share, and the detectives called it a night. Reed, however, had other plans. He headed to the seaside suburb of St. Kilda and made his way to Bojangles nightclub. Once inside, he relaxed amongst a sea of familiar faces and spent the next few hours chatting and drinking, as if he didn't have a care in the world. Late in the night, he struck up a conversation with Sammy the Turk. After some back and forth, Reed asked Sammy if he had any guns for sale. Not that he was short of weapons, but as an obsessive collector, he always wanted to add to his arsenal. Sammy asked Reed to follow him, and the two men headed out into the parking lot. It was after 6 a.m., the end of a long night, and Reed was anxious to wrap up business and head home. Where is it, mate? He asked. They'll be here in a minute. Sammy replied. Who's they? Asked Reed. Sammy repeated himself. Whoever they were. Reed didn't like the sound of it. He checked behind, but the parking lot was empty. When he turned back, Sammy was pointing a gun in his face. With the sheer number of hits out on Reed, Sammy could have made a lot of money from killing him, not to mention put an end to any further shakedowns. Reed, never a man to go down without a fight, immediately went for the gun. The struggle ended moments later with a loud gunshot. Sammy dropped to the ground and Reed made a quick exit after grabbing the shell casing and throwing it on the roof of the club. He then took off in a taxi to his brother-in-law's house, hiding the Beretta he had just used to kill Sammy in a plant pot. Incredibly, the jury sympathizes with Reed, believing his version of events and acquitting him of all charges. In their view, it was a clear case of self-defense. He walks out a free man. There is, however, more to the incident outside Bojangles' club than Reed has let on. A truth he will keep hidden for another 26 years until his confession, mere weeks before his death. He may have talked his way out of trouble in one trial, but the shooting incident with Nick Apostolidis comes back to haunt him. 
In December 1989, he is convicted of intentionally causing serious injury to Apostolidis' friend, arson, and reckless conduct. The result is yet another trip to Pentridge Prison for a minimum of two years. It's during this stint that he'll begin corresponding with journalist John Sylvester, a relationship that will open up doors for Reed he never knew existed after his release. When he does eventually get out in 1991, he vows, for the first time, to go straight, to walk away from a life of crime, the only way he's ever known. Can a leopard really change its spots? In Reed's case, the answer is a resounding no. His next stint inside is only six months away, but after that, his life is about to take a series of turns that even an erratic man like Reed could never have predicted. This next phase of life will skyrocket him to international fame as he finds a stage to tell the world of his criminal exploits. But in spite of his famous candor, Reed all the while carries with him dark secrets that even he is not ready to share. Secrets that he'll finally get off his chest at death's door in his final interview. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. Mark Reed says farewell to Pentridge, and the next, unexpected phase of his life begins. He swaps out guns for words, embarking on a number of different careers. He is a natural storyteller, and there's a fascination when it comes to blue-collar criminals bearing all. But can a man like Reed ever truly be trusted to turn over a new leaf? Or will he always be doomed to fall back on his old ways? The crimes he has been publicly tried for are just part of a long list. Some of these he talks openly about. Others, however, he keeps buried deep down inside. But being told you are terminally ill can have a strange effect on people. And as the clock runs down, Mark Chopper Reed has plenty more to say. And his final confession will captivate and shock the nation. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.